I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. This may seem obvious. Students learn best in environments where they feel a sense of safety and belonging, environments that the science of learning and development has shown open up the brain to learning. But what if children find themselves in spaces that teacher, educator, and author Zaretta Hammond calls inequitable by design? And further, what does it mean to be a culturally responsive teacher? And why is that necessary not only to stimulate intellectual curiosity, but to move beyond cognitive redlining and transition students to cognitive independence? Zaretta Hammond is the author of Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain and founder of the Ready for Rigor blog. She is a former English teacher and for nearly two decades has worked at the crux of instructional design, professional development, and achieving equity. Hammond's research explores and analyzes the brain functions that inform how we learn and think, and it delves deeply into how students of color would benefit from culturally responsive teaching and what it means and doesn't mean for how educators can help students get ready to tackle the rigorous content necessary to succeed. As you'll hear, it's such thought-provoking conversation that it called for two episodes of this podcast. One note before we begin, an ask from me to you. If you like our 180 conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's part one of my conversation with Zaretta Hammond. Zaretta, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. I'm excited for our conversation. I am as well. And most of the time in these conversations, I ask folks about their personal journeys at the end of a conversation. I, mean, I like to get the theories and missions first, but it seems evident that with you, your personal journey is directly connected to your mission. So could we start there? Yeah, I am a product of grandparents who came out from the Deep South to San Francisco in 1940. So they were part of that last wave of Black migration, leaving the Deep South because of Jim Crow, lack of opportunities, and that sort of thing. So being able to understand what my grandparents went through, and here's the thing, they were both illiterate. My grandmother, I think, learned to find her name when she was in her 70s. And I remember that mm. event. It was just like, woo. My grandfather had gone to the sixth grade, and when he came out here, he was longshoreman for all his life because he had really strong hands, a strong back. He had that physicality that allowed him to leverage that. But in terms of education, they both were not well served by segregated schools in the South. And as a result, I think for my mother, who was two when she came out with them, it kind of radicalized her. Even though she was a teen parent, she had her first child by the time she was 17 and by 22 had three children, but she always had a hunger for education and always felt that was important. And we lived in the pink projects in San Francisco's Hunter Point. And when it came time for us to go to school, she literally visited the school in our neighborhood and she just said, basically BS, I'm not sending my kids, kids sharing books. She just didn't feel any joy or livelihood. It just felt dingy and prison-like. And so she, before busing was even popular, put us on the city bus 
from Hunter's Point over to the predominantly Asian and white community that my grandparents were fortunate enough to buy a house. They were one of probably nine Black families in that area, and she used their address. So she basically lied to send us to that neighborhood school which was predominantly white and Asian. And they pretty much knew we were not from around there. And they kind of looked the other way. Don't make any trouble. We'll look the other way. This was the message we literally got. And we had to get ourselves two hours across town, two different buses we had to transfer to because mom had to go somewhere else. There wasn't no mom bus. She didn't even accompany you on the bus. You were navigating that on your own. By ourselves, because again, you do what you have to do. But here's what was interesting. In her welfare to work job, she got that position as a library technician. So our after-school program was meet mom at the library. She'd put us in the children's section. She'd pile the books on the table so high. And she said, by the time you hit the table top, (laughs) because you've read these books and looked through them, it's going to be time to go. So that was my after-school program. That experience radicalized me. I don't care if the school's all black and brown. There is nothing special sitting next to white people in terms of making sure that we get a quality education because that is what continues to get perpetuated. Every school, every neighborhood school should be a high quality school, no matter what the composition. And so we still perpetuate this. This was the whole idea of Brown v. Board that somehow we're being disadvantaged because it's all black or all Latino or too many indigenous folk. And somehow we need to be adjacent to white children to have value in our education. And that deficit mentality has followed me all the way. And I was able to see that. But I do think this was important because it's part of my radicalization that when I then moved into upper elementary, it was certainly true. I became much more aware of it in middle school because my mother made a commitment that education wasn't something she was going to turn over to the school. Kind of like talking to kids about sex. You don't send them to school to get that talk. The parent has values. The parent has a way in which they want their child to be initiated into that conversation. Well, my mother felt as strongly about education. And so she made sure we learned to read. She made sure we had wide experiences. She made sure we knew Black history and Latino history and First Nation, Indigenous history. You need to know the other folk who are having these issues. And so that, when I went to school, put me in a different category. So I was in the honors classes of gifted and talented, and I was often the only Black person there. And it was not an intellectually safe space. Teachers did not protect me. There was no intellectual safety. And then we put gender on top of that. I went to Lowell High School and I literally left for my own mental health. I went to my mother and I said, even though I've worked really hard to get to the most high level specialized high school in the city for my own well-being, I can't stay here. She was heartbroken because this was kind of the- It's a very well-known school, yeah. Yeah, well, and for her, I did all this so that you could get here because it is a well-known school. And I just told her, listen, I can either go through this and come out broken or I can maintain my sense of self and identity and go somewhere else. This was a hard conversation because imagine people, particularly- African folk who have the history of enslavement, education is the pinnacle. Getting your kids to an Ivy League or specialized high school, this is what we all sacrifice for. 
And then to say, you don't want that. And it wasn't because I didn't want it. It's because it was hostile environment. And I had to morph my identity way too much. And this happened in middle school. So I'd hang out with my friends who were in the so-called quote unquote bonehead English or remedial math. And then the bell would ring and mm. I would run as fast as I could to get to my algebra class that was on the other side of campus because we weren't hanging out in front of my algebra class. Again, I had to have these identities that I morphed back and forth between. No child should have to do that. That's just way too much. So by the time I came out, it's full on equity for me. It sounds like you not only recognized what you were feeling, but had the internal capability to express it and act on it. And I want to ask you about that. It came because I got in a fight with a gym teacher in the seventh grade. Hmm. I was up for expulsion twice in the San Francisco Unified Public School. It was not a pretty sight. This wasn't just me, you know, oh, I'm radicalized and I'm going to. This was me kicking somebody's butt. And it hmm. happened to be, in one case, a teacher. And because again, she was behaving in a way where she wanted to dominate me. She wanted to make me compliant. And I see this even today. We have a pedagogy of compliance going on. Even in schools that purport to be serving black and brown children, we have a lot of progressive white women who are leading schools. We're bringing in more people of color. But when you look at the pedagogy, when you look at the environment, this looks like pedagogy of compliance. And I recognize this because that's exactly what was happening. Zaretta, you're too outspoken. You're too aggressive. You're too this. And these were labels coming at me simply because I had an opinion. And frankly, I wasn't having it. I was done. And the only thing that saved me was I had teachers who came down to that hearing and vouched for my capacity, not only as a student, but as a member of the community of learners. And I learned a couple of things. I learned there was a different way to be radical. I had to learn a different, more pro-social way of advocating because we have too many kids right now who are just done. They're not coming back to school after the pandemic. You see article after article. Where are these children? Well, they're telling you how fun school is for them. The pedagogy of compliance and your ability to push against that and your mother's ability to push against that, she didn't just put you and I guess your siblings in the local schools. I would think most of us just go wherever we live and we put the kids in that school and we just take what the system gives us. You had it in you. You went through the experiences that you went through to push back against that. Your mother went through her experiences, had it inside of herself to push back against that. Most of us don't. I would simply, I would push back on that statement yeah, a little please. bit. Please, okay. Right? I don't think parents <laughs> of color are going along with it. It's just like an underground railroad. Africans may have been in slavery, but that didn't mean they were trying something else. Wasn't nobody just going along with the program. Same thing with parents of color. Trust me, they are swapping information. How you get around that? How you get around that? There is a level of advocacy where 99% aren't just going with it. They are in some way trying to subvert the system that would have them simply comply because they've been traumatized. Listen, we talk about trauma-informed practices and trauma that children experience in life. A lot of children of color experience that trauma in school. Racialized trauma perpetuated by well-meaning educators, 85 to 90% of the educators in this country are white. The predominant number are white women. 
So this idea that the pedagogy of compliance flows from the ways in which we've redlined physically, now we cognitively redline in the classroom. We talk about inquiry and speaking your mind and having voice and choice. And when Black children do that, somebody says, you're getting too big for your britches. You're talking back. So not only do we have cultural mismatches in communication, but now somebody has decided how far you can go in your ability to be the leader of your own learning. This is not a superficial, oh, some parents do some things. This is deep. White supremacy culture is a beast and it is trying to maintain itself at every effort. People have put billions of dollars behind equity initiatives and you still go into major cities, major rural areas, black and brown children still at the bottom. They are still reading the lowest performing. We know reading strengthens the brain and its ability to carry the cognitive load. Why can't we get it right? Ain't brain science. Well, it is brain science, but it's not rocket science. (laughs) What are the key components of culturally responsive pedagogy? I think that's a little complicated because one of the things that I think people listen for, even though we say it's practice or pedagogy or whatever, a lot of people are listening for strategies. So I just want to say up front, culturally responsive teaching, some people call it culturally responsive and sustaining. Some people are talking about culturally relevant. These are all variations of the same thing, right? Just like COVID variants, right? It's all COVID. (laughs) But the reality is this is an algorithm. So it is not so much a set of strategies as I could just rattle off, but just like in math, we talk about an algorithm being a set of numbers and processes and procedures and operations coming together synergetically. And it's actually why I created my Ready for Rigor framework, helping people understand that all of these things have to work in tandem and they can't just cherry pick one thing out. For example, the Ready for Rigor framework has four main quadrants, learning partnerships, that's the relational or the social emotional. Then there's community of learners, and that is an extension of the learning partnership. So not only do teachers and students have a relationship, but student to students have a relationship. Then we have information processing skills. We haven't even got to the good stuff yet because all of those things lay the groundwork. And then information processing, coaching students into higher levels of cognition. And then the center of that is helping the student with feedback, giving them wise feedback, but also having instructional conversations, leveraging those learning partnerships. And then the final quadrant is awareness. And this is a matter of who do you have to be in order to activate, implement, cultivate these things. And a lot of times, again, culturally responsive teaching just gets relegated to, oh, it's about relationships, or it's about motivation, or it's about awareness. So now it's interchangeable with anti-racist education. I'm really taken by your use of the word process, because in reading what you've written, that's what I get. It is about bringing together all of the components, who that student is, what the cultural realities and funds of knowledge that that student brings into the environment. It's about the educators and the instructors having the awareness and dexterity almost to be able to 
both in advance through planning, but then on the fly as the opportunities arise, integrate what's real and experiential from the student's point of view to what is going on in the classroom to help the teaching, I should say, make sense to the student to position the student to be in a position to learn. Right. And I think the word that I'm picking out of that that just resonates is dexterity. So Mm -hmm. it's an adaptability. It's not a matter of here are just the set of strategies so that if you do these strategies, magically something will happen. It's that human beings learn in what Vygotsky talks about as the social cultural way. It's a back and forth. So the degree to which I understand who the student is, I understand the context, I understand the content, then I can be adaptive. When the student doesn't get something in that moment, I can leverage funds of knowledge to help them get to that aha moment and not just reduce it to, I'm covering my content. My goal is to really help people kind of level up their understanding. Zaretta, I do not want to turn this into a political conversation. Is there a concise-ish way that you can then help me understand, given what we've just described, why is this such a political hot potato? Well, I don't think it's really a political hot potato. I think what happens is, and this is where, because of the lack of developing an anti-racist or a bicultural lens, we need both of those. And we always have. All instruction is culturally responsive. The question is always to whose culture is it responsive? And so what I see out there, kind of the political football you're talking about being tossed about is a misunderstanding of CRT as an acronym. Some people are using CRT around critical race theory. Other people are using CRT as the acronym around culturally responsive. Those two things are not interchangeable. And this is where we all as educators have to level up our understanding. Because once we understand critical race theory, and a lot of people talk about it as crit theory versus CRT, because they are two very different. And when we understand that critical race theory really just came out of the legal arena as a way to help people understand our racial caste system. So it really is a way to help people understand the social political context that actually produces these results. A system is designed to produce the results that you see. If you don't like those results, you're going to have to change the system. system. You can't actually name the parts that are not working and the parts that are working, then you can't change it. So this seems right now to be a really interesting tension. People want equity. It's in every school district statement. But at the same time, people are wanting to keep a, you know, a moat, if you will, around our racial history. And that's all critical race theory is. It's not saying white people are bad. It's not having some fire and brimstone, you're racist. This is people imagining things. And that's because they've not been in those conversations. And at the same time, they're saying and implementing in their teacher professional learning standards, you need to be more culturally responsive. You have to have an anti-racist and a bicultural lens, meaning anti-racist is what we're saying no to. But you also have to know what you're saying yes to. Just saying no to something doesn't tell you what you should be saying yes to. And that is the difference. This is a great opportunity and an inflection point around, are educators really going to educate themselves? 
This is the awareness quadrant. This is not just talking about your own implicit bias. That's not even it. It's the looking outward. Do you understand the system you're actually in? And that is so evident in what you write. And that's one of the challenges, I think. In fact, as an outsider, I might argue that that appears to be one of the biggest obstacles is it requires work. It requires effort on the part of professionals who have been taught a certain way, have been doing things a certain way, have lived a certain life, have challenged their own thoughts and ideas to whatever extent we all do it. Well, and here's the reality. I totally agree with everything you just said. And that's what it means to live in a multiracial, multilingual, multiethnic society. And it's not just on the backs and it's the burden of people of color. We all share this history. And if we're going to change it, if we truly want to change it, then these are the things that need to happen. Dr. Phil used to say, you can't change what you don't acknowledge, right? I can't even <laughs> yes. believe I'm quoting Dr. Phil. Quoting right. Dr. Phil. I took you as a Dr. Phil aficionado. I expected you to <laughs> drop a little doctor. A little nugget of wisdom in there. But here's the thing about it. I think we make it scarier than it is. Mm. And we don't have any emotional stamina to talk about things that feel like we're going to be labeled racist if we make a mistake or stumble. When I'm working with educators, I say, it's just like dancing, right? When you learn a new dance, you've seen it out, you know, it's on TikTok or wherever it is, you see the new dances and you like, oh, that's kind of cool. I want to do that. Well, we don't just go out to the wedding reception or out to the club or wherever you do your dancing and just do the dance. We go into our bedroom. We actually look in the mirror. We actually practice saying it to actually get some muscle memory. Then we take it to a safe space, to the backyard barbecue and the music's on and either friends are going to say, mm, look at you, or they're going to say, mm, look at you. <laughs> you have to practice. And what I find is white educators don't use their leisure time to practice. Mm. What they end up doing is thinking it's going to come in a PD. We do not have enough time for the kind of social emotional capacity building and stamina that we need to actually move through those challenging emotions. Leaders aren't skilled in holding space for people to have their emotions and come out on the other side, knowing that you're not going to be deemed racist. How do you make mistakes and move forward? This is not where our leaders are getting their training, unfortunately. So if you don't have people who can create those spaces hold that space. If you don't have people who are doing their own work on their own leisure time, coming prepared to do it in a professional setting, then that's pretty much a recipe for you spend all your money you want on so-called equity conferences and PD sessions and get the best consultants to come in. It's not going to work because people have not done the social emotional work to actually move past that sensitivity of talking about things that are really highly charged in our society. To make progress, you've got to do the work. You've got to put in the work. I should note as well, you've identified the reason why I don't have my own TikTok channel. Me too. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. I understand. Certainly not mine. What is liberatory education? It's very interesting because, again, people have notions of, you know, oh, we're talking something radical or th things like that. But I'm really not. What I'm talking about is this notion that Polo Freire, author of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, he talks about the idea that we make the road by walking it. It's the title of the book. But he says, liberatory education is when we have created the circumstances 
for children to come into their full becoming. Dewey says something similar. John Dewey, progressive public educator, says our job in many ways is to give the student the opportunity to reach his full potential so that he has command of all his capacities. That's what's liberatory. One of the things that I try to help educators understand that the student is the center of change. We have a tendency to keep looking at curriculum. We want to look at our learning targets and standards, and we have all this talk, but we forget the student. And the reality is only the learner learns. So if we can't coach the student into doing new things, not just out of compliance, but out of intellectual curiosity, out of a sense of desire to master and to move forward or to go deeper. Those are the things that we know. And when we think about inequity by design, public schools were set up to sort along racial lines. I'm not making that up. I'm not accusing anyone. That's just what was true. It is evidenced in Jim Crow and segregation and all the landmark work we had to do around Brown v. Board. And even now, we're still having those legal battles. It's really helping the child have that real capacity to learn how to learn. You can give them a library card and they can go learn anything they want. That is true to me, liberatory education. Yeah. It builds, I would think, the ability to be a lifelong learner because it's about growing those capabilities to be able to do much of that work oneself. I had a follow-up thought to Mm -hmm. the point that you were making before about the work and about the teachers. I'm wondering if there is anything slightly directive you might be able to offer. If I were a white progressive female educator, and granted not all white progressive female educators are cut from the exact same cloth, obviously, what would you urge me to do then to become racially literate? If I wanted to do that reflection, to do that work, what would you advise to end the cognitive reading of black and brown children, to quote you? I think the idea of building racial literacy is really important. So people do a lot of inside work, meaning this is you know how I feel about it. This is how I was raised. These are my cultural reference points. And that's really important work. I think the next piece of work to do, even you could do it to begin with, because you have to map these two things because they are like GPS. Where you currently are, you can only triangulate against these other two points. And one point being you've done internal work around your mental models and racial attitudes. But then there's the racial literacy. Do you understand how the racial caste system in America works? This is not about having an opinion of it. Just do you know how it works? Just like, how does electricity work? How do currents work? When people go to medical school, this is how the circulatory system works. There's not a judgment on it. It's just, it's working a particular way. So I typically will do, when I'm bringing a group of folks together, we do a 21-day racial literacy challenge, right? And this is actually what we do. So we break it into three parts. So I could offer here like one of those parts is, do you understand the racial history of your current community or environment? For example, a lot of people didn't know about Tulsa. A lot of people in Tulsa didn't know about Tulsa. So a challenge to people would be, okay, what's your Tulsa? 
what covenants were there before? Because particularly with progressive educators, one of the things that I find is they are still somehow shocked that this is happening. I'm like, I'm not sure what country you've been living in, but there should be no shock. The shock is you must have assumed it wasn't happening. And even here in California, where I currently live, people are like, oh my goodness, how could that happen here? Like, what the hell are you talking about? This is a country. We are a country born of apartheid. That's not a political position. That was one the founding fathers chose to make. Our constitution said three-fifths of a person. (laughs) This is not people of color making this up. So if you don't educate yourself about that, you can't know all the things. So what I say is one of the three things is just map your local context. You don't have to go out and tell other people about it. And I'm not asking people to do that. But if you are not aware, then you don't see how, oh, I understand how we came to this point because I see the historical through line. I see the antecedents to this policy. And here's the thing, last thing I'll say about this. They often look non-racialized. So this is that idea of cognitive redlining. We know what physical housing redlining is, but in schools, we have cognitive redlining, which on its surface doesn't look racialized. Nobody says we're going to put all the Black people over here. We said that in America at one time. Now it's not cool to say that, so we find other ways to get it done. New York, they're gifted and talented. A lot of people now are talking about charter schools as pseudo-white academies. It makes me think of a experience of yours that you wrote about, which is the teachers said to you that in teaching online during COVID, that the big challenge for them, the real challenge for them was they just couldn't get the students to keep their cameras on. It's a mental model that I see a lot. So what was happening is they were not understanding, despite their real passion to be better at implementing culturally responsive practices and being a culturally responsive educator, what they were not aware of is their mental model around the pedagogy of compliance. This is what I term it, meaning the more you have a class made up of poor students, low-income students, black and brown students who are underperforming, the more that there is a compliance to control the student. And then what you get is points taken away or points given or... Or go to the principal or be cut out or lose additional opportunity. I mean, there's... These are are all punitive. Now, nobody leans in and gets excited about learning because I'm going to lose a point. All you're doing is getting compliance. And so what we understand from the science of learning, and this is why I think the science of learning is so important for all educators who are supposed to be in the business of growing brains. So it's ironic that most don't know anything about the science of learning, but they have to if they're going to be a culturally responsive educator, because the science of learning says you have to know how to stimulate intellectual curiosity. And that was our conversation. And I asked them, how are you stimulating intellectual curiosity? Because the child brain, when that is activated, those chemicals make them want to turn that camera on. What are you talking about? What do you have? I want to see that. The child almost cannot control it. You can see it in toddlers. You can see it in young children who are just compelled. Even folks trying to lure children from their parents, like here's a puppy, come and see that. The curiosity of a child is so fantastically high that it is ironic that we don't know how to leverage that. Go ahead. Curiosity is really the secret ingredient for you, isn't it? I take it it's almost like that's the superpower. No, 
I think information processing is, but when you understand that the information processing cycle starts, you prime that pump with attention and intellectual curiosity. I call it ignite. It's like lighting a match. Mm. Now it's not enough. Curiosity is, does not tell you how to process information. It gets you on the on-ramp. It wakes your brain up to say, oh, what's gets going on here? And now you can move it to the working memory. But this is my point. It's an algorithm. So what we can't do is like, oh, I just need to make it curious. The kids are having fun. Kids are talking and moving, but that doesn't always equate to learning. So we can't reduce it to, oh, that's the thing. There is no thing. It is an algorithm. Is it possible there's tension for an instructor between driving curiosity and the potential for disorder or surprise or misdirection that curiosity can inspire because curiosity inspires wonder versus that institutional systematic, quote, need or desire for compliance? that I could almost feel a tension between those two. Is that? I don't think so. I think when people are educating in the way that Dewey and Ferrari talked about, you actually set this up. For example, there are other systems of education out there. Maria Montessori understood it. She called this the absorbent mind. When you look in a Montessori classroom, it is called a prepared environment. And the idea that the teacher does not have to exert control and compliance is because the teacher has front-loaded learning opportunities so that the way that those teachers are trained is when you prepare the environment, no matter what the child bumps into, that learning cycle is going to actually start. Then it's channeled into what they call a three-point lesson. So the child has great autonomy, but it's not chaotic. It's not just go learn anything. It is now funneled through here. We're going to actually mentor you, coach you into this. So even beginning at three years old, children learn this, that I can be curious, I can be free, and it does not spark any sense of, oh, I've got to control this because disorder is coming. One of the things that I talk about in the Ready for Rigor framework is, Teachers have to give students room to chew for productive struggle. Now, if you've not prepared for that, if you've not coached students into that, for a novice teacher, it feels chaotic. It feels messy, but learning is always messy. If you look at Project Zero, the maker education movement, maker-centered education, this is exactly what studio habits are. Painters, artists, it's messy. There's noise. It doesn't mean anything's coming unhinged. But if the teacher doesn't understand that, and this is what we're not training teachers to do, to create the environment for students to engage in productive struggle. We only reserve that as a reward for those in honors and AP and gifted and talented. And guess who's in those classes? First of all, the phrase productive struggle is, is such a powerful phrase. I can think about and understand how that applies to so much. What have any of us done that didn't require some type of productive struggle? I mean, physically hiking to the top of the mountain that we tried to, I mean, there is productive struggle in every component. I want to follow up on some of the liberatory education points that you were making. Can you describe with whatever tangibility you can, what does it take for students to shift from dependent to independent learning? Well, here's the thing. We don't put that on the student. We put that on the teacher. We're breeding dependent learners. All students start out kindergarten, first grade as dependent learners, just as all humans start out as dependent. 
And end is dependent frequently, but yes. it's in between. But here's the thing. There's a developmental trajectory we're on. And equity by design has put a deliberate barrier. So there's arrested cognitive development. So in essence, through pedagogy of compliance, we are breeding dependent learners. And we see them, the kids that need us to come over there. They don't know how to move forward unless we do it. So our response is to over scaffold. And then we're frustrated and mad at the students because we want them to do something different. We don't want to be the over scaffolders. We want to be the choice and voice and autonomous learning and all this good stuff. But what we cannot do is we can't be okay as educators with that productive struggle. So for dependent learners, they have to actually build their cognitive muscle be able to carry more of the cognitive load. That comes through productive struggle, just like you were saying, hiking. So imagine the first time you take that hike, it's got a nice deep incline, you're going to the top of the mountain, there's a little hopping and puffing. There might be a little stopping and hands <laughs> on the knees. I feel that you've seen video of me, go ahead. But we get to the top and then we like, woohoo. Now, imagine we did that every other day after our recovery time over the course of six weeks, then what's going to happen is we're going to get to the top of that mountain or top of that hill or into that hike with less effort. That's how cognition is. So when we say have the kids carry more of the cognitive load, it's not just me saying here, I'm going to hand you a 50 pound weight. Now just start lifting that and you've never been in the gym. Just like aerobic conditioning, just like muscular strength training, we start with a little, we increase over time, we release so that you can carry more of it. Someone's spotting you or you get your training wheels on. And eventually that's the path toward you are over time able to carry more of it, of that cognitive load. If I want students to change, then the question becomes, can I be the personal trainer of their cognitive development? What does that mean? And that ain't compliance. So now teachers have to learn a whole new set of skills. Where am I over scaffolding? You cannot reduce the scaffold until you increase their capacity. That's back to the algorithm. So we keep looking at the student and want the student to do better when we want to move them forward faster. But acceleration means we have to be different as educators. Think of it as, you know, you want to increase your health and wellness. You go to a personal trainer and that personal trainer does your assessments. Where are you? And then out of their knowledge, they put together a program that's going to coach you and lead you. And then the assumption is you're going to do some practicing on your own. You're going to shift your lifestyle. The person doesn't just have you come in and say, hey, change this, change this, change this. You knew that when you came in. I didn't write you that big fat check for you to tell me what I need to do. I know that. Yeah. I knew I was eating badly. I knew I wasn't exercising you know, enough. The same thing with students. Students, the older they get, they know they're behind. So now we have a social emotional component that is about their own self-efficacy. Competence precedes confidence. And we keep wanting this to be a growth mindset kind of thing. But if you're not coaching the student to carry more of that load where they start to see pretty quickly their competence slowly increasing, then there's no hope for you just saying, be an independent learner. Not magic, this ain't Harry Potter's wizarding world. That was part one of my conversation with Zaretta Hammond. Part two will cover learning loss, why dopamine is the secret ingredient to learning, and what exactly an intellectually safe space should look and feel like. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, 
go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.